Amen. Well, I want to speak to you just one more time on prayer before we go back to our Mark series. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And we'll be in verse 1 through 8. Lord, as we go to your word, we ask for your presence. We ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, as Ephesians 1 prays. Wisdom and revelation to grasp what you're saying. Wisdom to apply what you're saying to our lives, Lord. We don't want to be hearers of the word only. Somebody said we want to be doers of the word. We want to be doers, Lord. So would you stir us, convict us, move us? We give you all glory, all honor. In Jesus' holy name we praise him. I say amen. Well, as we talk about generations and the way that they shift and slide either towards God or away from God, one of the signs of despair in a nation, maybe the greatest uh, identifier of the spiritual state of a nation is whether or not they pray. Despair nationally is when the church uh, begins, when the church forgets to pray or quits on prayer. Scripture talks about calling on the Lord or calling on the name of the Lord. When Scripture describes righteous men, Job, for instance, Scripture says that Job would rise early in the morning to present sacrifices and offerings and prayer. I got a lot of scripture I want to show you, but it, it won't be painful, I promise. But First Chronicles 21, verse 26, um, it says this, David built there an altar to the Lord, hallelujah, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and he called on the Lord. So David was a man who called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. Genesis 12 Verse 8, this is concerning Abraham. He moved there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. So righteous men call on the name of the Lord. Well, the opposite's also true. Biblically speaking, the unrighteous, sometimes the scriptures will say, call calleth not on the name of the Lord, or the unrighteous refuse to call on God's name. Psalm 14, verse 4 says this, um, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the name of the Lord. So they're workers of iniquity. They lack knowledge. They eat people or they devour people, the poor and the needy, as some would eat bread. And they, they do not call on the name of the Lord. Now, as we just kind of follow this line of thought through Scripture, um, we, we find this maybe most manifest in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, you remember, is, is kind of after Moses and Joshua. Judges is this kind of in-between period before um, Saul is anointed the first king. But in the book of Judges, we see these just generations sliding back and forth, kind of sloshing like a drunk man in between loving God and, and living for the world. And um, Judges 3.9, I'll just show you a few times in Judges, Israel will um, rebel, will experience judgment, and their enemies will oppress them. And then they'll call on the name of the Lord, Judges 3.9, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, 
The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, Judges 3.15. You could just kind of keep following this thought all the way through. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ahud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And so we find this this calling on the name of the Lord. The righteous call not on the name of the Lord. David called on the name of the Lord. Moses, Abraham called on the name of the Lord. One of the most famous passages of Scripture that can be so twisted out of context, I think we all know this, but I just wanted to show you a piece of it, is in Jeremiah 21. And remember, Jeremiah is prophesying to Israel that they're going to they're going to be in Babylon for seventy years. They're going to experience the judgment of the Lord for seventy years. But in in Jeremiah twenty one, he's telling them that even though you'll be in in Israel uh, in Babylon for twenty years or seventy years, gosh, my brain is just as foggy as they come today. Forgive me. Um, even though that they'll be in Babylon for seventy years. Um, he's telling them that, that God's not done with them and God has a plan. And Jeremiah 21, 10 through 14, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem, he means. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then, then you will call on me. Then you will call on me, come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The day of redemption for Israel will be a day of calling on God. You'll come and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. I've been reading the life. Y'all forgive me if I'm sitting down. I'm just going to get comfy because I can't. Um, I've been reading the life of Andrew Murray. And Andrew Murray is this um, Dutch, uh, Scottish missionary to, to South Africa, like mid-1800s. And um, the churches there are just not vibrant at all like just totally dead they like actually you know we're seeing in the news today all this racial tension um in south africa if you haven't seen it it's just there well that racial tension was there as well in in the um uh, during andrew murray's life and and the church just really is just kind of dead and at times racially motivated and not alive and andrew murray kept calling these prayer meetings and they call these prayer meetings and they would say, you know, church, if we prayed, God would revive us. If we prayed, God would revive us. And then, and every prayer meeting, they called like six people would show up and none of the churches really participated and nothing really happened. And, but then one day after they kind of caught some momentum, they were standing up. It was actually Andrew Murray was the pastor as one of his deacons was leading a meeting in the church. And, um, in the meeting, um, at some point, a young girl stands up. She's 15 in South Africa. They would call her colored. Um, so she's not white. She's, she's 15 and, and she stands up and raises her hand and she says, can I, can I speak? And the deacon in this, again, like highly racially motivated 
climate got a little nervous, like he was about to start a fight. And he said, but finally, his, his, his words were, my better judgment prevailed, and I told the young girl, speak. And the 15-year-old girl stood, this 15-year-old, what they would call colored girl, stood and just began to pray. And as she prayed, the whole room began to shake. And, and the stories go that, that the entirety of the church just began to pray with her. They just began to shout and pray and cry. And it was like this 15-year-old girl broke the prayerlessness. And Andrew Murray came in. He was a very like intellectual man. And when he came in, he was he was he was taught that God's a God of order and, and you need to pray one at, one at a time. So he told the church, stop, quit. And they just kept praying anywhere. That's a good church, you know, whatever, pastor, we're going to keep going. Um, but it's actually really fascinating. Historically speaking, when you look at the Dutch churches today um, in South Africa, almost all of them were originally built in a shotgun style, you know, like a, you know what I mean by shotgun, New Orleans style house, just straight shotgun. But today, almost all of them have a have a center section that runs through the middle because it was the start of that prayer revival that caused all the churches to explode. They had to start building on, adding on. And again, it's broke by a 15-year-old farmer. Paul tells the, the, the Corinthian church in, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord, both their Lord and ours. They're called to be saints together with the larger body of Christ, which calls upon the name of the Lord. Do we call on his name? Do we know what it means to actively, daily, with repetition, call upon God's name? Are we a generation? If if the book of Judges just continued through and somewhere in the middle there was us, what would the what would the scripture say of us? Like, are we the generation that calls on God and sees revival and sees awakening and sees blessing from the Spirit of the Lord? Or are, are we the apathetic, stale, sin-ridden people? Today I want to read you from Luke 18, where Jesus teaches his disciples a parable. Um, and in the parable, it, the introduction to the parable is just as powerful as anything. It's worth spending a whole sermon on. The introduction of the parable says that Jesus taught the disciples this so that they might always pray and never faint. Let me read you the parable and we'll, we'll get rolling. Uh, verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. But there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
First, he tells us to the parable to the effect that we might always pray and not lose heart, the ESV translated. Um, not faint is, is the translation, especially the KJV that the, the old men of prayer always quoted. In other words, he told them this parable so that they would always pray, daily pray. Watch in verse 7, he says, Will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? So we've got a, a daily, night and day prayer. God gives justice to the elect who pray night and day, day and night, who give themselves to habitual prayer. We're learning to be a people of night and day prayer in our body. I keep, I was telling the elders this week, maybe last week, the elders and I were praying together and I was telling them that I'm so adamant that we have a culture shift um, because for, for us, we work nine to fives, most of us. Um, and, and when we get off, we do things like run the kids to the soccer game, which is good right? Like dads in their kids' lives, participating in activities. Good. I love it. Please keep doing it. We do things like run home to, to, to watch the latest Netflix binge, whatever, but, but nowhere in our, in the, in the Western Christian life, have we scheduled in corporate prayer and, and, and to ask of us to be a people who embrace night and day prayer. I understand that I'm asking us for a culture shift I'm asking us for a daily life shift to happen where, and I'm, I'm not saying we're, we're working on having prayer meetings daily in our, in our congregation over the next six months. That's my prayer that we get to the place where we have at least one prayer meeting a day. I'm not saying that you need to be in the prayer meeting every day, but man, I am saying you need to participate in the prayer life of the church. We've got to participate. We've got to have a shift. And so Jesus says, um, I, I, I'm telling you this so that you might pray and not lose heart. You might not faint. And I want to show you that there is a temptation to faint. I would say, and I don't mean this critically, and sometimes I can be critical, but that's not today because I'm tired and hungry. Okay. Um, I would say that the majority of the American church has fainted. The majority of the American Christians have, we've fainted. We've, we've, we've given up. We've lost heart. We've quit praying. Maybe we've, we keep showing up to church and we keep kind of doing the things that we know to do, but we've lost the heart when it, when it pertains to prayer. And Jesus is, Jesus just is a man of prayer who teaches us to be men and women of prayer. You, you and I, we have flesh. I don't know if you've figured that out yet, but you do. Um, we have carnal desires. I, every day of the week, guys, every day of the week, I would love thin crust pepperoni pizza from Pizza Hut and to lay in bed and watch a movie and crash. Every day, that's what I want to do. <laughs> but, but obviously, that's not good for me. Right? Like we have these carnal desires and we've got to tame them. And our carnal desires, they, they want to squelch out our prayer lives. And this is what Paul teaches in Galatians 5 and 6 is that, that in our, our flesh and our spirit, they wage war with each other. 
and what you feed will thrive and what you starve will die. And so many times we feed our carnal life, we just keep fulfilling our fleshly pleasures. We just keep whatever, pick your pleasure, drinking, smoking, watching TV for 24 hours a day is a problem, okay? Your YouTube scrolling all hours of the night is a problem. We just keep feeding our carnal desires. And the scriptures call us to feed our spirit man in prayer and in, in the word. And you guys know me. I am a great advocate for balanced spirit-filled living, right? Like we we don't want to, no one's, no one is um, celebrating burnout around here. Okay. Like I'm, if you, if you fast and pray all hours of the day while you neglect your kids, like the elders and I are going to have a problem with you. Okay. We're, we're not neglect, we're not asking you to neglect your basic responsibilities or to neglect your children. It's not spiritual to ignore your kids because you've decided that you're just going to be locked alone for the rest of your life. That's, that's irresponsible. So we're, we're not celebrating, um, we're not celebrating neglect or, or burnout or hyper spiritual, um, postures, but, but we do want to celebrate night and day prayer, daily prayer. So your flesh will resist you. Guys, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but you actually have an enemy or an adversary. The parable tells us we have an adversary. And he will do everything he can to assault the prayer life of a church. I'm convinced that Satan is not afraid of mega churches. Satan's not afraid of the churches filled with people to the overflow. I don't think Satan's afraid of churches with the best music or the best preachers. I think Satan's afraid of praying churches. And I, I think Satan attacks praying churches. Man, we were here Thursday before we started the fast. Is that right? Yeah, we were going to start the fast Thursday night. And we were here and um, it was afternoon. I want to say we had just had an elder meeting. And we, um, Pastor Brad and I came in the building over here. And it's like, as soon as we hit the building, we're getting ready to to fast, preparing, you know, who's going to do this? What's going on? As soon as we hit the building, it's like, I'm sick. I'm sick. And I'm three days into the fast. I got COVID and I'm laid up like with my water bottle. (laughs) Um, Man, like the enemy's going to assault us. I got, this isn't a woe is me because God's been so gracious to me. And I don't, I really don't need pity. He's so good to me. But we woke up on this, well, maybe it was this Thursday morning. And we have three cars because we have a teenager who's almost got his license. So we went ahead and bought him a car. Um, he paid for half, praise God. We're, you know, we're doing the financial discipline thing. Um, we woke up Thursday morning. Haley's car has two flats and none of the other cars will start. Not one of them. <laughs> We've got every car in the shop right now. One's in the driveway waiting to go to the shop. But everyone in the shop. And, and I don't know, you could call that coincidence. I would call that hell. Like, um, and, and the, the enemy will do everything he can to frustrate, to manipulate, to cause you to cower. Man, I'm laid up in bed with COVID thinking, why did we call it fast? <laughs> um, but we've got to we've got to press and recognize that we just have an adversary who who doesn't care about our gathering together and high fiving each other and encouraging each other. He gets really anxious when we start praying, really anxious when we start praying. And so there's an enemy to fa- there's a there's a temptation 
to faint. And many live in this state of constant faintedness. That's a word now. Um, but we need to be aware of our flesh and the enemy trying to intimidate, trying to manipulate. But Jesus says that that we are are to be people who pray night and day. Jesus says we're to, we're to pray and not faint. So we're to embrace constant prayer, daily prayer, devotional secret prayer. He teaches us in Matthew 6 to be people who go into our closet and pray and shut the door. So we should practice secret prayer. But he also teaches us, you know, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'll be with you. He teaches us corporate prayer. The early church from Acts on always practices corporate prayer. And so he just teaches us to be people of prayer and when you look at Jesus's life closely, we realize that Jesus was a man of prayer and that Jesus actually, biblically speaking, still hasn't quit praying. Uh, that, that seems like a strange thought, but we know in his life, he rose early to pray before the sun. Some, not always. I'm not a, I, I like to stay up late and get up late. I, that's just, I'm just that kind of person, but I've been trying to, the last season, I've been trying to get up early to pray and if I don't beat the sun, I go, oh, Jesus rose before the sun, and I'm getting beat by the sun. And that's probably a religious spirit that I'll deal with later. Um, Jesus fasted for 40 days alone with God, where he was energized and had 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 power. He's He's the chief intercessor. He's the ultimate man of prayer. And the scripture says in Romans 8.31, it says this. This is one of the most beautiful lines of scripture we all love. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with us, with Jesus give graciously us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And watch this. Who is at, he's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the scripture teaches that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God in his exalted state and that he prays for us. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, biblically speaking, Jesus at the right hand is still talking to Father God about us. He still hasn't quit on prayer. He says, you should pray and not quit. And by the way, I'm still praying. By the way, I'm still interceding on your behalf. He carries on. Now, let's look at the parable closely. The parable tells us of three individuals. The first individual is the widow. The second individual is her adversary. And the third is an unjust judge. The widow has been attacked, assaulted, treated in an unjust manner by her adversary. And so she goes to the local judge and she begins to beg him for justice. Now, the only problem is, is that the judge doesn't fear God, nor does he fear man. And he just kind of smugly moves her along. He doesn't care. This judge only acts on the basis of bribery. Give me some cash and we can talk. But to the judge's surprise, she comes back the next day. And he still doesn't really care. He just ignores her, moves her along. But she comes back in the evening. 
And she comes back the next morning. And she comes back the next morning. And the parable is that she, that, that the judge finally gives her justice. And I love the Greek here. Um, it's, it's kind of a, like a, my brain again is so dull. It's, it's a saying. I don't know. I don't can't think of the right way to say that. But the, the Greek literally reads, the judge says, I gave her justice because she was, she was punching me in the eye over and over again. It, it says she keeps punching me literally like under the eye, like this bone. He says she's beating me down by punching me in the face every day. And so finally I just gave her what she wanted. And, and the idea is that the, the widow has no advocate. The widow obviously doesn't have a husband. There's no one, there's no man arguing for her. She probably, widows in this time period are typically not, um, wealthy. Okay. So she, she most likely doesn't have resources. What she has is her persistence. What she has is a, is a posture in her heart that says, I don't quit, period. So she keeps coming and she beats this man's face up until he finally just gives her what she wants. Now, this parable is one of opposites. It's the idea being taught here is that we are not the widow. The, the point is this. The widow gets justice. We're, we're not a widow. He says, Jesus says, will God not give justice to his elect? And so our, our identity is not the one without resources. Our identity is not the one without a husband or covering or the one without a lawyer. Our identity is the very elect of God. The, the sovereignly chosen people who belong to the Lord Almighty, bought by the blood of Jesus, grafted in to the vine, adopted into the family of God. You and I are elect. We're chosen. We are God's beloved ones, not the widow. And then the parable just goes on. Like, obviously, God is not the unjust judge. You actually can't even uh, ascribe a proper definition of justice without bringing God in the middle of it. Justice flows from his own heart. It's his nature. It's his essence. God is justice. He's obviously not the unjust judge. So now what we have is the opposite, right? I'm not a widow. I'm your elect. You love me with an unfathomable, endless, infinite, total, perfect love. And you're not unjust. You are the very essence of justice. He's proven his love for us by sending his son to Calvary. How many times over has he proven his love to us, man? Plucking us up out of miry clay. How many of you were depressed and bound in sin and addicted and God just snatched you out of the middle of it, man? Hasn't he loved us so well? Man, hasn't he loved us so well? And so we have an, an intercessor who pleads for us and with us in Christ Jesus. And we don't have an unjust judge. But notice, man, if I could take just a few more minutes. Notice the, um, G- Jesus is saying, many faint, they quit on prayer. They faint, they get tired, they get weary. The revelation that would cause us not to faint is, is, is this. God's unfathomable love for us and desire for us to have justice against our adversary. The revelation that would cause the church to rise up and pray is, is not we need to do more because we don't do enough. 
even though that may be true. The revelation that causes us to pray is not if we prayed more, then maybe God would love us more. That's not the case. It's not the case. The revelation that motivates and stirs and thrusts the church into prayer is this. God's justice and our state of perfect love in Christ Jesus. Meaning that when when I wake up in the morning and, um, Siri, be quiet, you're interrupting me. Um, I'm teasing. Um, Siri is a demon, though. Just, just throwing that out there. Um, when I wake up in the morning and, like, every car won't start, it's fine. Like, God loves me, and things will all... Things will shake out for our good, and we're okay. We're going to be fine. Um, there, there's that kind of like just just being confident in God's love that drives me to just say, God, I thank you that we have cars in the first place. And if if Satan can break them, you can heal them. So let's do that. <laughs> you know, like. Um, but but there's a confidence in God's love that will push us to prayer. And we we need it more than anything. We don't need a revelation of, or we don't need a, you guys understand what I mean by revelation. We don't need an understanding that says you never do enough and you're garbage Western Christianers who are lazy and slothful. We need an understanding that says that we are wildly loved by the Lord of hosts who wants justice. And what he asks of us is that we come before him and plead with him consistently, constantly. Now, I, I want to say this because I think it would be amiss not to. Um, we do have an adversary. And that's part of what this parable, um, the, gosh, the parable is not promoting a kind of, and, and I don't mean to be political here at all, so we don't read into this, whatever. I think there's a such thing as like, like pure social justice, like fighting for justice, equality amongst ethnicities. That's blatantly Christian. Like, there's no such thing as Christianity without loving wildly red, yellow, black, and white, right? Like, we love all people, period. Anything that treats someone less than on the basis of their skin color is, biblically speaking, evil. Big explanation point. Like, we, we get that. When, when I say social justice here, I mean, like, our, our modern understanding of, of social justice. Um, th- this is not, when he talks about justice, he doesn't mean that. He's, I think sometimes our liberal churches interpret this to mean that, that you know, God wants to destroy the patriarchy. Um, and it's just, it's just not the context of what's being said here. The context of what's being said here is that we have an enemy named Satan who wants to rob your kids. Satan is zealously, daily, frequently after your children's lives. He's after their educational process. He's after their emotional lives. Satan wants to see your marriages destroyed. And he will destroy it by, there's no tactic below him. Inserting lust or pornography, trying to get your eyes to chase other women, just a little too flirty. Satan wants your marriages destroyed. And part of pursuing the God of justice here. It, again, it doesn't have in mind the model, def, the modern definition of social justice. It has in mind the church rising up and saying to the Lord, Satan cannot have my kids. I am bought by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is on the doorpost of my house. 
We are a people grafted into the family. Satan cannot have our kids, God. Satan cannot have their educational process. Lord, we're saying in Jesus' name, Satan cannot have our marriages. In Jesus' name, Satan cannot bound this region with addiction. Lord, we're asking for the blood of Jesus to have what he purchased, the nations. Jesus purchased the nations. He said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto myself. We're asking, Lord, for the justice of the cross to bear forth it, meaning what Jesus bought there on the cross, would you cause it to come to fruition in our day? Jesus did not die so that the church could be ate up and spit out by demons or demonic agendas. And so in prayer, we're supposed to petition God daily, frequently, night and day prayer, constantly knocking, seeking, pursuing God, And we're telling God, we're reminding God that we belong to Jesus. We're bought by the blood of the Lamb. And our enemy, our adversary, is wicked and should be under our feet. And and notice, guys, um, so what I I think sometimes when we read this parable... uh, we understand the idea of praying God's will, right? And so, like, you know, the prosperity gospel preachers told us that if we prayed for a Mercedes-Benz, one would show up in our driveway. Um, I, that's not what Jesus is promoting here. He's not promoting, hey, if you night and day prayer for a Mercedes-Benz, then you're going to get one dropped in your driveway. What he's promoting here is if you would night and day prayer that God would bring you justice against the enemy of your soul, you would get victory. And what he says is that you would get victory quickly. The enemy's hands would be stripped from you quickly. The invitation is night and day. And and the response is that that will God not quickly bring his elect justice? Night and day, constant. And petitioning the Lord. We love around here this R.T. Kendall quote. R.T. Kendall said that every when we come to God to pray, we ought to pray as if it's the first time we've ever prayed. Meaning that like every time I show up to pray for my kids, I should pray for the same fervency as I prayed the very first time. I just keep coming with a zeal. And, and I want to encourage you, man, grandparents, parents, pray for your kids every stinking day, man. Don't, don't let a day go by that your kids aren't covered with prayer. And pray, with them, pray for them with zeal. I think I think there's nothing like a grandparent's prayer for their children. My my grandmother prays every week. I got a text right now. I could read it to you. I know you're preaching this morning. I'm praying for you. I believe in God. Like there's there's real victory in a praying set of grandparents, man. And I, I want to ask you. I want to ask you to to pick up that mantle and pray with zeal as if you've never prayed before. We 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 can't sleep on it. When it, when it, when Jesus. We'll get to this text in Mark 8 here in a, in, a, in a minute. When Jesus is on the Mount of Glorification, maybe the most beautiful moment of Jesus' life, when he's when he literally transforms into his own his glorious scene and he's talking with Moses and Elijah, Luke tells us that the apostles were sleeping. And in the lowest moment of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I could talk about Gethsemane for hours. I just love it. It's worth meditating on. In Gethsemane, he says to the disciples, can't you watch with me for one hour? Why are you sleeping again? Why are you sleeping again? And I just think, man, we don't want to sleep through our hour. 
Pastor Brad, you want to come and get ready to service? We're going to get ready to receive communion. I just want to say, stand over there yet because I'm not ready for you. He messes with me too, y'all. He just doesn't get the microphone as much as me. I I just want to say, man, let's embrace a culture shift. Let's initiate in our hour a shift in our daily lives, and let's begin to embrace night and day prayer, like scheduled in prayer. Like I'm not going to miss prayer. I used to love Mike Bickle. used to say this all the time. He would say, like, if you had an appointment with the president, um, the 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 NFL game coming on is not gonna not gonna cause you to miss your appointment with the president, <laughs> right? Like, if you have an appointment with the president, you're not gonna skip. Look, I about went down. You're not gonna skip the appointment with the president because you know you just don't feel like it today. <laughs> like you would show up so excited and honored that he would make time for you. And you take pictures, wouldn't you? Somebody said no. <laughs> Pick your favorite president. <laughs> Again, I'm just, it took me a second to catch that one. <laughs> Pick your favorite president then. Um, <laughs> it took me like 15 seconds to process what that meant. Um, but you, you get, you catch the theme, like you would, you would, you'd be honored. And so that's it, it, the way we ought to be with the Lord. Like we have an appointment and I'm not going to miss it. Like, I'm not going to put that on the back. It's not on the bottom of my schedule. It's on the top of my schedule. And I'm going to petition the Lord for justice. I'm petitioning the Lord so often for stinking breakthrough in our region. That, that the enemy's hands would break off of many addicts. I think there are so many people addicted, so many people lonely and depressed in their minds. I, one of the things I want to pray, because the school year's getting ready to come, man, I just want to pray this year, or we'll pray about this at some point on Wednesday nights or in one of our meetings. I'm just praying that this year we have a real revival in our school system, that there are just, even if the school system's promoting the most ridiculous propaganda, that our, that our teenagers would just stand up and say, man, we're going to love Jesus and we're going to hope we're going to evangelize and we're going to serve God. And I, we need, we need to be praying, just petitioning the Lord for these things. And so I want to ask you, um, I'm going to let Brad come service communion and I'll get out of here. But I want to ask you to really ponder this week. Like there is a sign up. There is a, um, an offer of the Lord that says, um, come and be an intercessor, come and be a person of prayer. And it require, it'll cost you something. Um, I told you already, I felt the Lord in this recent season asked me to pay a little more, to give a little more time, to give a little more of my life. It'll cost you something to be a person of prayer. But I want to ask you to really ponder um, whether or not we're fulfilling these words of Jesus to pray always and not faint. And, and I'm believing that there's some in our body who are just going to say yes. Like, no matter the cost, I'm signing up again. I'm saying yes to Jesus. I'm saying yes to be a person.
who comes to our Father, the just judge, on the basis of my election, my adoption into the family, and who petitions God that the serpent get out of our garden, right? That the serpent get gone, um, and that that we have we have life here and peace here. We're petitioning God that the ball get moved forward as it pertains to intimacy with God, and that that our ceiling is our children's floor, right? That they love God even deeper. They pursue God even wilder. That's my prayer for us. I just want you to ponder it. I want you to meditate on it.